Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Good morning, and welcome to service this morning. I know it's been quite some time since we have met together in person, but I want you to know that we are with you, we are praying with you, we are ministering to you the best that we possibly can. Uh, Just to kind of give you a couple updates as we're getting closer to coming back together, um, we have been working behind the scenes to get some things up and going. Um, So be aware that once we do come back into service, things probably won't won't be exactly the way we like it, but we will be in service, so we'll be happy about that. We'll be able to uh, visit with one another again, and hopefully as time passes, this all will subside, and we will be able to worship together as we did before, but not just that, but hopefully it will inspire us to do things a little differently and for the greater good, and I see that, and I am fully confident that that will happen very soon. This morning, I wanted to break away from the conventional sermon as a pastor's been going through uh, the life of Jesus Christ. I wanted to kind of address an issue this morning that um, has been bothering me as we've been sitting at home. Uh, We've been kind of left to our devices, and a lot of us get on social media, and we're writing articles, and we're sending things back and forth, and one thing that I have noticed is that a lot of people and a lot of Christians are writing things that are pertain to opinion, and I have noticed some bickering back and forth, which is going to happen. We are human. But I wanted to address this this morning because it has struck a nerve with me, and I know it has struck a nerve with some of you. So I kind of want to address some of that issue this morning. Bear with me. Um, Again, this is opinion too, so um, you have the option to listen or not. So... But I want to talk about inevitable differences of opinion. And we're going to be focusing primarily in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So you can make a reference to those particular um, passages this morning. The question I want to ask is, must Christians agree on everything? Sometimes we as Christians are quick to judge others as to their relationship with God or the way they live their life. We know that there is a lot of false teaching and casual Christianity out there. And rightfully, we don't want to make um, a huge deal about it, but we also don't want to fall into the trap of listening to false Christianity. And we don't want to get taken in by it. At the same time, the basis for our judgment isn't always the best. It's very easy for us to confuse our personal preferences with what the Bible teaches regarding an issue. Thus, it's best to allow others the right to decide concerning principles or matters of conscience. A story for you. A shoplifter with a guilty conscience sent a letter to a department store and enclosed $100. The letter explained... 
I have just become a Christian, and I can't sleep at night because I feel guilty. Here is the $100 that I owe you. He signed the letter, and at the bottom added this postscript. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. Martin Luther King Jr. once declared, Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Consensus asks the question, is it popular? Conscience asks, is it right? The Bible assigns conscience an important role in the Christian life. The Holy Spirit often works through the conscience either to excuse or to convict. However, this does not mean that the conscience is infallible. Some people have seared their conscience and can no longer distinguish between right and wrong. Others, like those described in today's message I'm going to bring, uh, suffer from weak conscience. They feel guilty over actions that aren't inherently sinful. What do I mean by that? Well, like I mentioned earlier, it was bothering me because I've been seeing posts on Facebook about the morality of masks versus no masks. And it's a heated debate. I see posts every day. Um, Where I stand or where I don't stand is irrelevant here. But I will tell you that this is not a sin. People have been drudging this up as a case to claim whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian based on your opinion about whether or not we should be doing this or doing that or you know where I'm going with this. It's, this is not an issue of morality. You see, in the Christian life, the conviction of our conscience should be taken seriously. Not only do we need to be sensitive to the prodding of our own conscience, it is important that we have the regard of the conscience of others. Nowhere is this more evident than the realm of Christian liberty. This conflict over Christian liberty surfaced in two primary contexts for believers in Rome. In the decision whether to eat certain foods and how to observe the Sabbath. The danger was that divisive arguments were erupting over non-essentials. Does this sound familiar to you? So there are words of warning and encouragement for the weak group and the strong group. Paul's main concern here was for the spirit of unity within the church. Chapter 14 in Romans deals with functioning in controversy, particularly controversies within the church family. In other words, how are we as Christians to treat other Christians? Even in Rome, the early church had already engaged in that most favorite of Christian indoor sports. Anybody know what that sport is? Judging other Christians. Thus, the principle of acceptance over Christians is set forth here. Christians are at different levels of spiritual maturity. They also have diverse backgrounds that color their attitudes and of their practices. 
We are to stop judging other Christians over non-essential and learn to live harmoniously with them. And I'm going to have three points this morning that point towards that and how we are to act in those situations. First, we need to know, first and foremost, that we are all accepted by God. Verse 1 begins with an injunction to the strong. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. The focus is on him whose faith is weak. In other words, the one being weak in faith. Which appears in the emphatic first position in this sentence. Faith here refers to one's convictions about what faith allows him or her to do, rather than to one's general belief. Okay? So now the command is to accept, in other words, keep on receiving ourselves, or keep on receiving to ourselves, and such a person without passing judgment on disputable manners. This phrase literally says, not into quarrels, and especially not into quarrels about our opinions. We must distinguish between essential Bible doctrines and personal opinions. Now, of course, this is often part of the problem. Some personal opinions are confused with essential Bible doctrines. This verse assumes there will be differences of opinion. In other words, disputable manners. Especially in the confines of the church. We are not to quarrel about issues that are matters of opinion. Don't expect everyone, even in the best possible church, to agree on everything. Though... And through sharing ideas, we can come to a fuller understanding of what the Bible teaches. Accept, listen to, and respect others. Differences of opinion need not cause division. They can be a source of learning. They can enrich our lives and enrich our relationships to one another. Those who consider themselves to be strong in the faith are to accept those they consider to be weak in the faith. Interesting concept. Strong, take care of the weak. Didn't Jesus Christ come to earth to take care of those who were sinners, which was all of us? A prime example of what we're supposed to do here. Those who consider themselves to be strong in the faith are to accept those they consider to be weak in the faith. In other words, we don't put each other down. We don't come across as an individual that says, you know, I've been studying the Bible for X amount of years and I think I've got a little bit more knowledge than you, so let me tell you how it is. No, we're to bring those people up to our level. Bring them to us. Bring them closer to Christ so that they in turn can do the same. Some personal opinions are confused with essential Bible doctrines. 
See, the verse goes on and assumes that there will be differences of opinion, like we've said. But we also have to know that the human tendency here is to look down or treat with disdain those we consider weak. The human tendency for those who are weak is to be judgmental towards the strong. You see, we are called upon to receive those who are weak in the faith. Embrace it. Enjoy it. We need to do this without passing judgment on the areas in which we don't see eye to eye. Who is the one who is weak in faith? The answer is initially strange to some. Verse 2 seems to turn the tables on what we might generally think as strong and weak. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Now I could go into a long heated debate about why we should eat meat and why we should not eat meat. But this was a real issue then. This was of biblical proportions then. The reason some Christians then were vegetarians is not stated. Eating everything may refer to the freedom from Jewish dietary restrictions, or it may refer to eating meat offered to idols. Some Jews who believed in Jesus continued to recognize the distinction between clean and unclean foods. Others who came from a pagan background felt guilty when faced that they had been sacrificed in pagan temples was something sold in the market or served at certain festivities. Some from this background found it difficult to separate the meat from its um, religious context. They were applied at the thought that they might be eating something that had been part of a pagan festival or idol worship. So, and, and Paul addresses this here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Though some doubt remains about the exact conditions which Paul is addressing, there is no doubt about the advice he gives here. To be sure, Paul counts himself among the strong. But he does not commend the strong or demean the weakness of those whose faith or conscience does not permit them certain freedoms which the Bible allows. So who is weak in faith and who is strong? We are all weak in some areas and strong in others. Our faith is strong in an area if we can survive contact with sinners without falling into their patterns. Is it, or rather, it is weak if an, in an area if we must avoid certain activities, people, places, in order to protect our spiritual life. It is important to take a self-inventory in order to find out our strengths and our weaknesses. Whenever in doubt, we should ask this, can I do that without sinning? Can I influence others for good rather than I be influenced by them? Verse 3 teaches us to accept those God accepts, even even if their practice or opinions different from our own. 
The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted them. Since the motive or action is a personal matter, Paul does not make an issue out of it. Nor should we. He is solely concerned with the reaction to it. Those who are strong have no right to look down and judge the continued abstinence of the weak. You see, the weak here also have no right to pass judgment on the freedom practiced by the strong. We all have different convictions about what we should and what we should not do. In such circumstances, neither believer nor judge should be looking down on one another. You see, look down on should be really translated despise. Or perhaps reject or treat with contempt. The reason a strong Christian should not despise a weak one, and the reason that a weak Christian should not condemn the strong is one that God has accepted both of them. To enforce the command points that they are not of the boss of the others in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The issue at stake is not the strength or weakness in faith, but is of the danger of judgments from both sides regarding matters that are not essential, especially essential for salvation. The weak judge the strong for what they believe to be illicit uses of freedom. The strong despise the weak for their lack of freedom. Each side judges the other from its own conscience in an attempt to compel the other to the other opinion. How many of you are going to change your opinion because of what someone wrote on Facebook? How many of you are going to change your opinion because they told you it's better? Others cannot change your opinions. The only one here who has the power to do so is our Lord Jesus Christ. If he is not central, if he is not the focus of what you are about or who you are, that's when those opinions can sway you. When Jesus Christ is not put first, everything else, it, it just ruins you. There's no lack of a better term here. It just ruins you. You become somebody that you're not. You allow someone else to tell you what is and what isn't. You have a right to truth. But you also have a right to fight for that truth. This is not something you take lying down. This is not something you argue over over social media. 
That's where the problem incurs. Because Christ is not number one. People are taking... I've watched this, and I've seen this in the recent weeks. I see people take scripture from the Bible, and they twist it to make it fit what they think it means. And they take it out of context. Folks, this is wrong. This is not what scripture is intended to do. Scripture is intended to unite. It is not to divide. The reformers called these non-essentials adiaphora, or matters about which Christians may differ. They are, of course, far more adiaphora than there are diaphorenta, or... In other words, essentials to faith. Understanding this, Paul makes no attempt to take sides. Rather, he exhorts his readers not to judge fellow Christians on points which God's perspective are not of ultimate importance. How do our opinions... I should say rather, why do our opinions matter? They matter because they belong to you. God has made you who you are. But if those opinions are used for the purpose of dividing, that is not of God's purpose. Accept one another. Then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. As a believer, each person is a servant of God and is accountable to God. Any Christian tempted to judge another believer must face Paul's question. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Such criticizing is wrong because a domestic servant should only be evaluated by his master, not by fellow believers. Thank goodness for that. As much as I don't want to stand before God to have him pass judgment on me for the things that I know that I did wrong. I would much rather face him than some of the people that I have faced in this world. And time after time again, I even let them dictate what I feel, how I should act, what I should be. They have no right to do that. Only God should be the one we worry about. Therefore, Paul concludes here. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Even if a believer despises the scruples of another Christian, God can defend the second person. Don't overstep your boundaries or limits of authority. God has freed believers from the opinions and consciences of others. And the reason for this is because God sustains us all.
second point that I want to make this morning. In all of this, this is all a matter of conscience. Whether a person be weak or strong, the important thing is to conduct your life before God for God's approval because that is only the significant thing here. My job is not to please you. My job is not to please me. My job is to please God. And everything that I say, everything that I do, everything that I am is to the glory of God. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, God welcomes our opinion. He does. If you're convicted to be one way, that could be God prodding you in the direction that he wants you to go. And I say, go for it. If this is God-derived, then how can it be wrong? But when we use God to achieve our own purpose, when we use God for our own devices, that's where we get it wrong. And we need to watch it. Apparently, some believe that all days were holy to the Lord, and verses some held one day to be more sacred than another. Or perhaps some observed special days for feasting or fasting. It is acceptable to hold these different opinions and practices. What isn't acceptable to judge another as wrong based on our convictions? In other words, if a person who once worshipped God on the required Jewish holy days were to become a Christian, he might well know that Christ saved him through faith, not through his keeping of the law, but still when the feast days came, he might feel empty and unfaithful if he didn't dedicate those to God. Paul responds to both brothers in love here. Both are acting according to their consciences, but their honest scruples do not need to be made into the rules for the church. Certainly some issues are central to the faith and are worth fighting for. Just like there are issues currently that are worth fighting for. But there are other issues that are not. Folks, if it is not central to your faith, and it is not central for the fact of salvation, why are we putting such importance into it? Our principles should be in essentials unity. In non-essentials liberty. But in Everything love. Thus, how we observe the Lord's day is not so important as the fact that we are honoring, honoring our Lord with our observance. For this fact alone, it should be every day we serve the Lord. It should not be 
confined to certain hours on a certain day. It should be a constant act, never stopping. How we observe the Lord's day is not so important as to the fact that we are just honoring our Lord in that observance. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind as to the rightfulness of our observance. More important than the observance is the certainty that the individual is involved because of a motivation and desire to honor the Lord in what he or she is doing, be it Sunday or any other day. Examine your heart to be sure you're doing what you feel the Lord would have you to do. Better yet, seek scripture for guidance. Seek scripture for guidance. But I'm going to tell you, do not take that scripture and twist it for your benefit. Do not take that scripture and twist it for your benefit. Verse 6 goes on and admonishes one and all. In all we do and whatever we do, we are to do it for the Lord. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And gives thanks to God. Those who wear masks... And I know you're probably going to think this is comical. But those who wear masks do it for the love of the Lord. Those who do not also do it for the same reason that they love the Lord. Why are we bashing each other over this? We can go into the medical impact of this. We can go into the social impact of all of this. But when those two things defy and go against the spirituality of all of this and what can be achieved, that's when we run into the problem. Paul is expressing a precept applicable for all people. There is far more to living the Christian life than how we observe the Lord's day. All circumstances in life, the routine and the extraordinary, provide tests and opportunities to prove that Christ is the Lord of our life. Is that evident in what we're doing now? When people see you or kind of see you, I know we haven't seen much of each other, but those who have seen you in all of this, all, all this that has transpired, is the Lord shining through you? When you get on that social media, does your opinion exude that of which the Lord has given to you? The one eating can give thanks for the meat before him, while the one abstaining from meat can give God thanks for his vegetables. And whatever we do, our aim and desire is to do it for the Lord. Each must act with a clear conscience in everything. In matters where there is no specific guidance, each person must be persuaded that the way he or she acts is in accordance to God's will. 
Not you twisting it so it sounds like you are, but it is in accordance to God's will. Then the Christian is to commit giving an act to the Lord with thanksgiving. Which leads me to my final point this morning. And it's very simple. We are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord. The apostle now rises above the opinions and controversies of earth to proclaim again the lordship of Christ, beginning in verse 7. This is Romans chapter 14, verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. You see, a key component in the equation of liberty is responsibility to Christ. A Christian is living out his or her life as Christ's servants before God. We are individually accountable to the Lord in every area and experience of life. Each Christian in both life and death is seen by the Lord and is accountable to him, not to other Christians, not to politicians, not to healthcare individuals who dictate what we are and what we aren't to do. We're not accountable to them. We are accountable only to the Lord. The reason the Christian does not live to himself is that he lives to the Lord. This purpose, which is also an obligation, does not cease with death, but carries forward into the next life. Philippians 1 verse 20 mentions this. Death does not separate Christians from the love of God in Christ. Our death is not merely a transfer from one arena of struggle to the realm of rest. Our death is an enlarged opportunity to show forth the praises of the Lord. Relationship to him is the key on either side of the veil. Verse 8 emphasizes the believer's union with Christ. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Paul is convinced of the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ and of his possession by Christ in both life and death. None of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. Our culture may teach that individualism and self-fulfillment are the sole guarantors of happiness. What is that? But you see, Paul exults not in who we are, but in whose we are. For we belong to the Lord. Since our lives belong to him, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we do not live to ourselves. We are to live for the one to whom we belong. This simple truth forms the bedrock of all Christian ethics, which is the visible side of our relationship with Christ, where we demonstrate his lordship. The one who gave his life without reserve for us is worthy of our lives without reserve for him. In life and death, we are his. We need to let the Lord guide us. We need to let him work in us. 
We need to let him give us direction. Not the other way around. Because we are the Lord's. And verse 9 goes on and proclaims that when Christ is our Lord, he is Lord no matter where we are or what happens to us. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. So by the virtue of Christ's death, he is the Lord of the dead. By the virtue of his resurrection, he is the Lord of the living. The Savior gave his life, laying it down in obedience to the will of God, and thereby purchased the church by his blood. But only after his resurrection could he assume the active headship of his people. The resurrection event established Jesus' claim to deity, his claim to lordship, and his claim to universal dominion. His triumph included victory over death. So that even though his people may be given over to death's power temporarily, they have not ceased to be his. As the future bodily resurrection of Christians will demonstrate, he is in fact the Lord of both the dead and of the living. Now the order in which these two divisions appear reflects the order in the previous statement about Christ and his death and return to life. Not even death breaks the lordship of Christ. Death is the gateway that leads to Christ into a life eternal over which he is also Lord. In closing this morning... As we've gone through this, and having provided significant instruction here on Christians' responsibility not to divide over matters that are not essential for salvation, the Apostle Paul draws his discussion to close with a prayer for unity in the church. See, Paul recognizes that Christian harmony is impossible apart from God's empowerment. And, he's, and so he calls upon the Lord... To grant the readers of his epistle the ability and willingness to glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do all this with one voice. Let us consider the most notable points of this prayer. First, the apostles' prayer is both an act of intercession and a statement of exhortation. By including the prayer in the body of his letter, Paul once again stresses, albeit indirectly, the importance of unity in the church. He prays for what the Lord wants, namely a people united in gospel essentials and tolerant of diversity when it comes to matters that do not touch the heart of the Christian faith. Since this is what God desires, it is what we should desire as well. Thus, we should always be working towards Christian unity that is grounded in the truth and promotes peace based on the Lord's revelation without compromising gospel essentials. And secondly, Christian unity does not mean the elimination of diversity in the body. That would be boring. I'm sorry to say it, but it would be. It would be boring. If we all acted and did the same thing all the time, we would fall asleep. Much like you might be doing during this sermon. But honestly, there needs to be diversity. 
there is a latitude for differences of opinion in the body of Christ as long as the gospel is not overthrown in the process. God seeks unity among diversity, which should not be surprising because as a trinity, he exhibits both unity and diversity. He is one in essence, and he's three in person. As believers live in harmony, we reflect the Holy Trinity and the unity and diversity that characterizes God's very existence. Thus, we fully image that of the Lord, which is obviously our original mandate here. We bring glory to God. Our whole lives are to be about the busyness of glorifying our Creator. We accomplish this in the covenant community as we pursue the holy love that does not seek to badger others with our beliefs on non-essential matters. But it also means we stand firmly upon the bedrock of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. May we seek this holy love in our own lives and may we promote it in the church as far as we are able. Final question. What was the subject of your last Christian debate? Was Christ honored in the disputed matter? There are some Christians who are zealous for correct doctrine, whose lives reflect nothing of the love and life of Jesus Christ. Do others see you as one who contends for not essentials of the Christian faith in such a way that could only be described as contentious? Folks, a Christian has no right to play God in another Christian's life. May God enable us to distinguish between opinion and personal preference and that which the word of God requires us to be truly faithful followers of Christ. So let the Lord guide you. Let him work in you. Let him give direction to you. I want to read a poem that is, is a perfect statement of what a Christian should be doing. It says, When I say I am a Christian... I'm not shouting, I am saved. I'm whispering, I get lost. That is why I choose this way. When I say I am a Christian, I don't speak of this with pride. I'm confessing that I stumble and need someone to be my guide. When I say I am a Christian, I'm not trying to be strong. I'm professing that I'm weak and pray for strength to carry on. When I say I am a Christian, I'm not bragging of success. I'm admitting that I've failed and cannot ever pay the debt. When I say I am a Christian, I'm not claiming to be perfect. My flaws are way too visible, but God believes I'm worth it. When I say I am a Christian, I still feel the sting of pain. 
I have my share of heartaches, which is why I seek his name. And when I say I am a Christian, I do not wish to judge. I have no authority. I only know that I'm loved. This is a poem that was written by Carol S. Wimmer back in 1998, but so important in the brevity of of everything that is going on. Don't claim to be a Christian to shout it out just just so you could say it. Believe it. Do as God will. And don't judge others when they fall short. Bring them to where you are. That's true ministering. Bring others to you and then to the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, I come before you ready to pour out my worries, my anxieties, and my fears at your feet. I am claiming and declaring your promises for blessings of peace and strength over my life. Bring a peace into my soul that passes all worldly understanding. And Lord, make me a light for others to see your strength. Heavenly Father, we're in need of your peace and truth to soothe our hearts and spirits in the current situation. When we find ourselves awake in the middle of the night, our pressing needs and worries can feel overwhelming. We need to be reminded of your your love, your healing, and of your grace. Lord, we ask for your mighty power to surround us. And Father, we bless you for our lives. We give you praise for your abundant mercy and grace that you give to us. We thank you for your faithfulness, even though we are not that faithful to you. Lord, we ask that you give us an all-around peace in our mind, in our body, our soul, and spirit. We want you to heal and remove anything that is causing stress, grief, and sorrow in our lives. Lord, please guide our path through this life and make our enemies be at peace with us. Let your peace reign in our family at our place of work, businesses, and everything we lay our hands on. Lord, let your angels of peace go ahead of us when we go out and stay by our side when we return. God, teach us what it means to have faith in silence. When we face trials that are beyond our understanding, help us to find peace. Help me be joyful in hope patient in affliction and faithful in prayer because you set all things in accordance within your time. It is not our time, Lord. We like to think it is. But Lord, all of this is in your timing. And I pray that it continues to be that way. Remind us to wait patiently and find that peace in your plan. And Lord, we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. And I am excited to say I know that it's been a long time since we've been together. But I know that time is soon coming to an end. And we're looking forward to seeing all of you again. Again, thank you for being here this morning.
The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.